You're listening to the Art of Parenting podcast. I'm your host, Jeanne-Marie Penel. Welcome and thank you for joining me. I created this podcast along with everything I do at yourparentingmentor.com to support and inspire you to be the best parent you can be. I know for a fact and from experience that parenting was never meant to be done alone. From conception to preschool, my mission is to give you the tools, strategies, and knowledge to embrace and elevate your parenting experience. I'm dedicated to supporting, inspiring, and guiding you to nurture your child's immense potential with as much joy and ease as humanly possible. Make sure to take time to check out all of the resources I have gathered for you in the show notes, as well as on my website, yourparentingmentor.com. And be sure to get on my email list so you do not miss a single episode and other products and events I curate specifically for you. And please do not hesitate to reach out if you have any questions, concerns, or feedback. A warm welcome to you and thanks for tuning in. Hello and welcome back to The Art of Parenting. This is your host, Jeanne-Marie Penel. And today I have Jeannie Ewing with us. Um, and Jeannie and I are just going to have a conversation around motherhood, parenting, and so forth, like I do with most of my guests. So welcome, Jeannie, to The Art of Parenting. Thank you. So as I always like to start, I like to have my guests define what the art of parenting means to them. So to me, parenting growing up was kind of this distant idea where you could learn about it from being taught or reading a book. And so when I was pregnant with my first child, we have five Um, that's what I did. I read like what to expect when you're expecting and what to expect the first year and the art of breastfeeding and all every, everything because I'm a reader. And so I thought, Hey, if I'm prepared and I know how to do this, then I'll be good to go. And what I've discovered actually is that there really is no way to formally teach or mentor someone as a parent, because parenting is something that you have to really understand is nuanced. And so that being said, it's complex. It's multifaceted. It depends on the dynamic between you and your child. And every parent has different personalities. Every parent brings different kinds of baggage and unhealed trauma into their um, parenting. And children are these reflective lenses that really point us to those areas that are wounds in us. And so to have this kind of creative way of being a mom or a dad means to me that you are open to the candid conversations that your children will have. You're open to the fact that you can be taught by them as much as you teach them or maybe more. It means that you have this sense of receptivity more than you do about control. So I guess that's kind of a long way of explaining that because I think artistry is really a beautiful way of thinking of parenting because it's there's really no right or wrong way to do it. It really depends on how you love your child and how you learn to love yourself. And that is really the essence of giving birth to anything creative. Definitely, definitely. Really like that, that it is so nuanced and so different. I'm sure that with your five children, you've had five very different experiences. 
Yes. Yes. So um, before we get uh, too involved in our conversation, I'd love if you would share with our listeners a little bit about your background and what you what you do in the world. So uh, my background educationally is in school counseling. I used to be a high school counselor. And once I quit my job, or rather lost my job, I decided to really focus on trying to get pregnant and have kids. So my husband always wanted four. I was like kind of reticent about that, but said, maybe I can do that. And so I have three daughters in a row. And then I have two sons that who are basically like Irish twins. They're 13 months apart. Now, um, the daughters were very much planned in the sense that I had to go through fertility treatments to get pregnant with them. Felicity, my oldest, and Sarah, my middle, both have different kinds of neurodiversity. Felicity has OCD and she's also got ADD. And then Sarah was born with a rare genetic condition called Apert syndrome. It's a craniofacial anomaly. And she has a whole host of other sub-diagnoses. So after she was born, that kind of spearheaded my professional writing and speaking um, because so many people were curious about her condition since it's not well known. And I found myself just starting to write about it. And as I wrote about her medical diagnosis and all of the complexities of it, I started adding like my own commentaries, my reflections. And so that kind of sparked writing about grief which um, now I'm trying to move away from in terms of like shifting to focusing more on my memoir of motherhood. So that's the project I'm working on now. But I am a published author and I do speaking engagements all over the country. Beautiful. And and when you say, you know, that you were talking about grief, can you unpack that a little bit? And, and I have my assumption of what that grief might be, but I, I would like it to be from you. And then also when you say you're moving away from that um, and into the memoirs, like what what was the thinking behind that basically? Yeah. So I was writing these really deep blog posts and I was writing for this platform and my editor said, you know, there's this thematic element that really resonates with our audience. Do you, had you ever thought of writing a book about grief? And I was like, what? Grief? Because that was definitely not how I viewed my experience at the time. Meaning that after Sarah was born, um, for the first several months, I just felt like my whole world had been tilted off its axis. Every single thing that I believed or every single thing people told me, nothing made sense anymore. And I was angry. I was scared. I was sad. I was, I felt lonely. So there were all these components to it that when I thought about it more, I realized, yeah, I guess this is grief because grief isn't just about bereaving the loss of a human being or a pet who has died, like a living thing that has died, but it's, it's about grieving any devastating loss. It can be any devastating loss. And for me in that at that time, it was grieving the loss of who I thought Sarah was going to be and what I thought our family was going to be. And that was a huge blow. So that's why I kind of explain to others that grief isn't exclusive to, you know, going to a funeral and doing all the rituals that we tend to do in Western society. It's, kind of a multimodal experience. So it involves the psychological, the social, the spiritual, the physiological ways that we as a total being experience any kind of loss. And so that's the perspective that I come from. In terms of making this shift, 
So I've been doing this grief work for probably almost 10 years because Sarah is almost 10 or Sarah is 10. And I just got really burnt out on it. I just felt like not only was I carrying my own heavy burdens, but then because I tend to be highly sensitive and I'm an empath, I just absorb everybody else's stories that they would share with me. And I felt very overwhelmed when I would travel, I would meet people, I would do speaking engagements. And it just got to a point where I felt like, I think I've kind of exhausted everything I kind of want to say about grief. And at the time, I was also kind of discerning this new project, which had been in the back of my mind for a very long time. And that was about writing my first memoir. So the memoir itself obviously has elements of grief in it. So obviously I go back to reflecting on the different losses that I've experienced and what that means to me. And I'm trying to make a universal declaration out of my specific story. So that's why I've made the shift and how I've been doing it. Beautiful, beautiful. And when when you were talking about, you know, grief and, and kind of being burnt out of, of talking about it, I'm wondering, like, what's on the other side of grief? Like, once you've kind of processed it, what's on the other side? So my personal experience is that once grief enters your life, it doesn't really leave. It's more about how do I learn to sit with the times that it decides to show up in my life? So um, I'll never be the same person that I was before I had Sarah. So after Sarah, there's just, it's never going to be the same. I'll never be the same person since I lost my grandfather, since I lost my cousin to suicide, since I lost a good friend in a, a car accident, you know? So there are, there are things that you grieve and it's almost like it, for me at least, kind of compounds. And of course, every experience and every loss is different. But to me, there's not really an other side exactly because I feel as if I'm just navigating this vast ocean and that there are moments where I might get a reprieve. There are maybe seasons of my life where there are, there's more peace, harmony, joy than there is loss and devastation. But the losses that I've already processed and I've already like reflected upon and um, felt and allowed myself to move through, they, there's still times where they, they, um, they will resurface. There are still new aspects of that loss that I thought, oh my gosh, I thought that I already dealt with this. It's coming back. Why now? What's triggering this? What's activating this? And so to me, it's almost like making friends with your grief. That's interesting you say that because for me, when I, when I asked that question, what came to my mind was acceptance. Right. Mm-hmm. It's like I think that when we are grieving, at least the, the the first phase of it, at least for me personally, is just is just almost, you know, this anger that this should happen. And then, you know, with time, well, you you accept it because what else can you do but accept it, right? And and for me, grief is is very cyclical. There are I, I lost my mother when I was forty, so it's been twenty plus years. And there are years that, you know, it's fine. And then like this year, you know, her birthday's in May, Mother's Day's in May. I was like, ugh, it was it was really tough. I'm glad Mother's Day's over, you know? Uh so so it's just it it, it is fascinating and, and just so so nuanced. One thing I, I'd love if you could share maybe is how 
have you dealt, I mean, or have you had to deal with the, this, this emotion of grief with your children? Like, how do you, how do we help children grieve? And, and I don't know if you've, you've had to, to do this. So, so I'm not sure if this is a good question for you, but what, what would be like a, an advice that you would have for parents to, to help their children go through this process? That's a great question. Yes, we have. So a couple things came to mind and you're asking that question. So one of my cousins whom my children, especially my older children, knew pretty well, he died by suicide about a year ago, year and a half ago. And that obviously sparked a very difficult conversation. So my husband and I had to really kind of, we had to have a conversation ahead of time. Like, how much are we going to tell them? We're not going to tell my 10-year-old with special needs that you know, cousin Brian hanged himself. Like, we're not going to see that. We can just say, well, cousin Brian died suddenly. And when she asks why, we can say, well, we don't know. And then when she's older, we can explain more if she needs to know it or wants to know it. And we find that it's appropriate. So I would say, like in that kind of a circumstance, um, you really have to kind of take each child's uh, maturity level, their exposure to hardship, their um, developmental age, and that kind of can help you carve a pathway of conversation. I also feel like when it comes to any kind of grieving, it's really important to allow children to freely express how they feel and to allow them to ask any question they want to and be as honest with them as you can, which is hard. But when our, um, our dog died, we had for 14 years, that was another occasion, you know, where all the kids, even my three-year-old, they were like, where's Lily? And is Lily ever coming back? And so, you know, you have to kind of dive into these hard questions with kids it, sometimes it feels a little contrived, at least for me, because I am a deep thinker and I, I want to be able to explain some of the more, I guess, the more intimate or the the spiritual pathways that that I personally believe about like life after death. But, you know, with my children, it, it suffices to say, well, Lily's in doggy heaven. I mean, that sounds so corny, but it's like, that's what they can accept when they're that age. And then, you know, they might ask, well, what is heaven? Well, we don't know. Like, there are lots of questions that are so nebulous that my husband and I just have to be honest and say, we don't know. We don't know, but we believe that there's something past this earthly life for us. We believe that. And we don't have like hard evidence. We can't see it. Nobody who's still on earth has seen it. So we just allow our children to process it. Um, What happens in my family is that, especially with my daughter, Sarah, she's also on the autism spectrum, as well as having this craniofacial condition. So she processes things a little bit in fragments, I would say. And she might ask one question and then like a week later ask something else about that particular death. And you're just like, um, okay, I guess we're going back to this conversation. So it's really just allowing your child to feel safe enough with you to be able to cry, to be angry, and to just validate it, to be like, it's okay to be mad that you miss cousin Brian or you miss grandpa or you miss Lily. And it's okay that you don't understand why this had to happen. I mean, my oldest daughter, who's 12, 
has recently said, you know, I'm so mad at God. Why would he do something like this? Which was something that I personally did not have permission to say when I was her age in my so the fact that, you know, I just sit there with her and I say, yeah, that's totally understandable. I completely understand why you feel like that. And that's okay to just validate the the big feelings that they have, let them cry, cry with them, you know, let them see that you're human and that you are sad sometimes. You can even tell them that. Yeah, mom and dad are sad too. So there are, there's really no panacea in terms of like, here's the steps that you go through to help your children grieve. But it's really about this experience together. Again, it goes back to my opening statement about being receptive and being open so that whatever kinds of conversations might just unfurl you can't really prepare or plan for those kinds of things when it's something that's hard and painful. You just have to be able to be available and to be able to be that buffering adult that your child knows is safe and that they can come to with anything. Yes, yes. And th- and that that is beautiful because, I mean, to me, that's the most important is to be available to be honest and to you know let them see you going through the same emotions and that all emotions are are valid yes right i think that that's really the beauty of it now how do you you say you have five children and your second daughter has this cranial i i'm sorry i i forget what you the the name of it exactly mm-hmm. it's apert syndrome Apert syndrome. So how do your other children deal with that or maybe protect her or because I would think that, you know, people might make comments or look at her differently and things like that. How do you how how do they navigate that? Yeah. So my older daughter, my oldest daughter is probably the one who's been most affected by Sarah. So everyone who came after Sarah, it's like, well, Sarah's just always been there. She's always been part of the family, Sarah, Sarah. So the the younger three, youngest three, so there's their ages, um, six, four, and three years old, they don't really have that cognitive ability to recognize in a social si- situation, oh, someone's staring at my sister. Why are they doing that? That's not cool. But then my 12-year-old totally has been in that situation, and she's very protective of Sarah. There have been, I have to say though, I have to preface this and say that I'm grateful that in all of Sarah's 10 years of being on this earth, we've only probably encountered a handful of times where there has been some demonstration of cruelty by another child and even by adults. And in those situations, you know, again, Ben and I, my husband Ben and I try to model what we would like to have happen. So let me just give you one example. At the zoo a couple of years ago, we took our whole family and it was very busy. Um, There was a a large uh, group together. I assume they were like extended family or something like that. And um, they were kind of lingering behind us, but kind of going the same pathway. And Ben and I noticed this girl who was probably around Sarah's age, so about eight years old at the time, she kept like just uh, gaping at Sarah. And then she'd like whisper to her mom and then she'd point. And then as she got closer, she said very loudly, mom, why does that kid have such a weird face? And so 
I made eye contact with the mom and I smiled and I said, it's okay. You guys can say hi to Sarah. That's her name. And she, she can talk to you if she, you know, if you guys want to say hi. And so the mother just quickly ushered her child away from us. And, you know, for me as a mom, that broke me. It really broke my heart. And I couldn't control what someone else chose to respond to or how they chose to respond to my effort at reaching out. But at the same time, I felt good about the fact that I was trying to model something positive in that kind of a situation. Like, how can we make this uncomfortable, awkward situation less awkward and uncomfortable? And I could do what I could do. And I do that every time it happens. And Felicity, I think, because she has seen me model that behavior, she has taken it upon herself when I haven't been around. And on the rare occasion that that happens, she'll stand up for Sarah. And she'll say, don't be mean to my sister. She's not really that different from you. And, um, you know, then we'll process it as a family. So Sarah, now that she's older, she's more aware of that. And we're getting questions from Sarah at the dinner table like, am I ugly, mom? Or do my hands look ugly? Because her fingers were fused together at birth. That's one of the characteristics of Apert syndrome. So she had to have them surgically separated and they look different. You know, they don't look like neurotypical hands or typical hands. And so we'll have to sit there and help her process that and say, Sarah, you're not ugly. Sometimes people's remarks are ugly, but that doesn't mean that you are. And, you know, we'll let, again, we'll let her cry and we'll let Felicity kind of talk about whatever happened and how she felt about it. It's just, honestly, this is just kind of my life. This is kind of how things, the normal way of us living and being as a family. Of course, of course. And is Sarah attending um, a public school or, or is she in an educational setting? Sarah is in a private school and she has fantastic support. Wonderful. Okay, good. Because I was I was wondering about just the support. And then how does the, how have you found, you know, navigating this whole medical system with, with, you know, like you say, a, a medically complex uh, child? How has has that been navigating all of that in, in the US? Oh, it's a nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. Sorry to go there, but I just... Yeah. No, no. I'm totally, I'm totally happy to talk about anything. I'm, I'm an open book. I'm very honest. When Sarah was first born and I was just kind of learning the ropes, I took notes about everything. I kept every paper that had, you know, the doctor's recommendations, any kind of follow-up appointments. <clears throat> so I don't really go to that extent now because I have five children and I also have a life of my own. But what I do is that is I just play case manager. That's pretty much, I would say, at least 50% of my time is spent making phone calls, sitting on hold, being transferred, leaving messages, waiting for somebody to call me back. And this could be maybe over a medication that Sarah has to take that for some reason, the insurance won't cover or they they won't cover the generic, but they'll only cover the, the brand name or vice versa. And then, you know, um, having to call the provider and talk to the nurse. And um, it's become more bureaucratic in the past, I'd say, three years. I'd say since 
since COVID started. Much more bureaucratic in terms of like all the gatekeepers I have to go through to talk to the right person, the amount of red tape I have to deal with, all the like more forms I have to fill out every time I go to a specialist. Sarah has 15 specialists. Oh my goodness. She's had 10 surgeries. And so, um, you know, I walk in to an appointment with her and it's like, they hand me this stack of papers and I'm thinking, this isn't even the beginning of the year. Why am I doing this again? And it's the same stuff, you know, name, date of birth, guardians, address, emergency contact. And there are days, honestly, there are days that I come home and I'm just like, I, I can't do this tomorrow. I can't, I can't get up tomorrow and do this all over again because it's such a time tax and it's often very maddening. And it takes me away from my life and being able to actually fully engage in being a wife and a mom and a woman in this world and a writer and a friend. It it takes me away from that because it's so draining. It's so exhausting that really you have no mental reserves left over for anything else. And are there, are there, um, like people that you have been able to lean on for support? Like, because you said, you know, I'm a case manager, which, which it it sounds like, you know, that's what you, you have to do to, to navigate the whole system. But are there like coaches or, or mentors that help you through, through all of this, or you've just had to figure it out completely on your own? Great question again. So I've had that asked of me recently too. So Sarah has a uh, state-funded case manager. So every state has the equivalent of this particular program that Sarah is enrolled in. It's called the Family Support Waiver here in Indiana. And it's basically like a pool of money that's overseen by a case manager for various reasons. You can use it for medical equipment. You can use it for, let's say, aquatic therapy or equine therapy or a summer camp somewhere. Um, She uses it for music therapy, and I also get respite care. So um, the respite care is a family friend in terms of support who picks Sarah up from school, takes her to her counseling session once a week, Sometimes we'll come over and like take Sarah to the library or to the park or something. Um, So the point is, of course, to give you a little bit of a break. That's good. But if you're talking about somebody who can accompany me with filling out all the paperwork, dealing with the bureaucracy of the healthcare system, there really isn't. I mean, my mother-in-law said to me a couple of years ago, why don't you just like commission your dad or your mom to do that. Just give them all the paperwork. And I'm like, that's not possible because like, I've been doing this since Sarah was born. So my husband and I are the only ones who really know and understand all of the details about her condition, how they all kind of interface and overlap, how one part of her condition affects another. Um, And so I've just kind of you know, un- unwillingly been thrust into this role because I have to, you know, that's part of un- the unfortunate aspect of my experience of being a mom is that it's just expected. It's expected that, okay, every time there's another kid, you're just going to be the primary caregiver. And um, in, at least in, in my, my family. So I do not have the kind of support that would be ideal And it's not really even an option in terms of like, 
if you're just talking about professional support. If you're talking about personal support, that's another issue as well, because we don't really have that either. And when you say ideal, what would be like in an ideal world, what would that support look like for you? So for me, it would be having someone who is very learned in um, the healthcare system, who understands all of the changes taking place day to day, week to week, kind of like a CPA, like when we give our CPR taxes, like he's updated on all the tax laws. We don't have to do that. So ideally, I would like to have someone who is, you know, a paid professional who is who understands all of and can navigate that for us, who is someone that I can go to who's my liaison, who says, oh, yeah, let me call your primary provider on that. Or let me contact the pharmacy about that medication, or I can push this through a little bit more quickly because Sarah has a pre-surgical appointment coming up and we need to have this done. So that would be a huge help, but at least I'm not aware of anything that's, that's um, available for that. Yeah. It sounds like, it sounds like maybe it's somebody that you might need to train that way. Well, for sure. That's another like, part. Like a, a, somebody who, who, is interested in the whole medical field and and like a like a like a private assistant really you know yes yeah yes. yeah well i'm i'm sorry that you have to to go through all of this because it's it's hard enough having to you know deal with the, the complexity of of having a child uh you know that's medically challenged but then if you're not helped by the system it's it's just one more load right on our on our mother load. You bet. Yeah. Yeah. And how, because this must, you know, like you, you, like you mentioned, it takes time, it takes energy, it takes you away from parenting your four other children. How do you navigate that with them? It's painful. Uh, you know, my 12 year old daughter being a tween, she has in the past six months or so told me, mom, I feel like you're never home. I feel like you're never able to to talk to me or listen to me. And so there's a lot of guilt that I carry. I know mothers definitely relate to, to guilt, right? Um, and that's a big part of mine that I can't control the fact that I'm only one person and I can't be driving an hour and a half to the children's hospital, sit in the waiting room for however long, go to the appointment with Sarah, have the conversation with the specialist do all the paperwork and follow-up stuff, check out, drive an hour and a half home. I mean, that takes, you know, a half to two-thirds of my day that I'm not home for my other children. And so it's it hurts my heart. And the littles don't really verbalize it, but they act out. You know, they'll kind of like cling around my leg. Mommy, we thought you were never coming home. And so one of the things that my, my three daughters are in therapy and I'm in therapy. So this is just kind of something that we've all decided as a family is just important. And in therapy, I'm learning how to kind of prepare my kids for when I'm not going to be home. Like this, this is what happens when mom leaves. We're going to have a countdown calendar. Here's a comfort item. You can pick something that you can hold on to while I'm gone. And you know that when I come back, that you can give it back. And while while I'm gone, you can give it hugs and kisses if you want. We do a story called The Kissing Hands for my younger kids, which is based on this children's book, but you basically kiss your hand, put it on their cheek, and every time they miss you, they can touch their cheek where you. And so there are different techniques that we're finding are mildly helpful. But you know, 
you know, with children in the formative years, especially like there's just a certain amount of wiring that happens and the attachment that happens to their primary caregivers that if, if there isn't a consistent presence of that primary caregiver, that whether or not it's because of the person's choosing, it, it still affects the child. And so I know that and I understand because I understand psychology and I understand a little bit about trauma. And so I know that there are probably going to be other things that my husband and I are going to have to address and deal with as my children get older, other conversations. So I feel like my whole life revolves around these like very hard, honest conversations. Yes. Yes. And, and, and I can, I can hear that and I can feel that in, in your voice that it's, it's, it's heavy, but I also know how you know, how amazing children are where, you know, your children, these are the cards that they have been dealt with and, and they don't know any difference. And, and it sounds like you are very loving, caring, you know, connected and attached to them when you, when you are there and you're, you're doing the very best you can with the circumstances that you've been given. Yeah. I, well, I mean, you know, I do have a monster side to me. <laughs> I, you know, just being perfectly frank, like there are, are days and there are times where I'm I'm not a good mom. And I know that, but there's also a point where I can say, okay, this is my chance to repair and reconnect with my kids. Like I blew I blew it. I blew up at them. I was yelling and it wasn't their fault. Even if I want to say it is, it's not their fault. So I'm just, how am I going to make this right? And again, this is something that was not modeled to me by my parents. And so I've had to learn how it works in my family. How does this work with my particular temperament? And so it doesn't sound forced and I don't want it to end up feeling phony to my children, right? So. But I also know that it's very important. I can't just explode at my kids and walk away and then pretend like it never happened. That's damaging. So when I'm more regulated, I will go back and I'll say to that child, look, remember earlier when mommy yelled at you? I'm really sorry. That was not your fault. And do you want to talk about it? And sometimes they're like, no, I'm still really mad at you. I'm like, that's okay. You're allowed to be mad at me. And so I just give them their space and then sometimes they'll come back and they'll say, I want a hug. And I'll say, all right, you can get a hug no matter what, no matter when. And it, so, you know, I think that's another aspect of motherhood about parenting is that we're not going to be perfect. We're not going to get it right all the time because we're human. And if we can, again, model how we can reconnect after a damage has happened, a rupture has happened in our relationships, if we can model that to our children, if we can take the first step in humility and say, I was wrong, it was my fault, not your fault, then I feel like that's really going to help raise a generation of emotionally mature and strong people. Definitely, definitely. And I just want to preface, you said earlier, bad mom, and I would just totally reframe that you're you're human <laughs> that's that's it like we 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 all make mistakes and there's no bad or good it's just it's just you're human and like you say you you make mistakes but then you go back and repair them and that's that's what's most important so uh, because that, to me it just you know labeling ourselves as you know quote unquote bad mom for for having a hard time dealing with a situation or, you know, being dysregulated, that's just part of being human. So 
Yeah. And you know, what's interesting is when I talk to my friends or just other women who are moms, it's so sad to me how many of us carry that kind of binary way of thinking. Like this is good or this is bad. I'm good or I'm bad. There's so much shame ingrained in us um, from whatever past trauma history we have that we're carrying. And it's really a lot of work, a lot of personal and inner work to actually like excavate all of that and be able to separate who you are as a person from that very human reaction or behavior or response. And that takes a lot of time. That takes a lot of deep soul searching, I feel like. And I don't know that a lot of women are immersed in an environment where they really feel that moral support, where they can be equipped like when they are burnout, when they are overwhelmed, especially in our Western culture. Like we don't have a lot of messages, whether covert or obvious, that tell us that we should be having more of a communal mindset, that raising children, that being a mom isn't just exclusively mine, right? Like I I should be able to share that and other people should be able to participate in that, whether that means at times supporting me so that I can rest, so that I can, after I come out of this rest, be a better mom? Or does that mean sometimes I'm going to have these different generations that are actively part of my children's life and part of their growing up experience? But we just don't have that mindset in this culture. And so I think that that kind of spills over into our self-concept and that labeling of saying, oh, I was being a bad mom. Even if we don't say that out loud to someone like I did on this podcast, right? A lot of us are thinking it. A lot of us are thinking, oh my gosh, I screwed that up. I'm such a bad mom. And yet um, we may not admit it to ourselves. It may not even be a conscious thought. But it's definitely there. And I can hear it in in the voices of my friends and the women I talk to in the ways that they kind of like overexplain or they tend to like justify something or they they kind of backtrack and say, well, I didn't really mean it this way, but I meant to do it this way. And it's like, I just feel like, can't we be honest enough with ourselves and with others to say, this is my experience, period. And whether it's good in the moment or whether it's hard in the moment, all of those things constitute a life. Like I can't compartmentalize the grief from the joy because often they're experienced together. They coalesce. And so in order for me to to grow into my motherhood, I have to be willing to sit with the whole spectrum, the whole constellation of feelings that can happen in one experience or one moment or one conversation with my kids. Yes, and and what you say about the the community, right? The the village that is I think so missing to to our parenting because parenting was never meant to be done alone and yet we are parenting, you know, more and more isolated than than we've ever been. But also what you said about, you know, this kind of inner dialogue that we might have of, of you know, kind of blaming ourselves or, or shaming ourselves. I, I, I truly believe that we are hopefully, I mean, I, I, I tend to be more on the positive side, so optimistic. I feel that, that there is definitely more of an awareness 
and kind of taking charge. And, and I see a lot of, um, especially women, you know, mothers supporting each other and so forth. And, and I feel like we're paying a little bit more attention to maternal health, maternal mental health, all of that. So hopefully we're going in the right direction. And then also just the fact that, you know, you and I are able to have these conversations today and, you know, we're going to bring awareness to other people and, and it's, it's a ripple effect. And I feel that that's happening more and more. So that's great. You must be surrounded by totally different people than I am. Oh, it might be, you know, you know, I live in the Midwest and I live in a, a city where there isn't really that maternal support because I've looked for it. And I'm talking in the community, in the neighborhood, in churches, family, friends. It's just not there. And when I talk to other women who live in this geographical region, that's a very common experience of theirs as well. So I think it's great that you're seeing the tide turn, um, especially with the work that you do, because that's that's very hopeful for me. Very hopeful. Yeah, because I've seen it as like an evolution, right? Where evolving as parents, just like, you know, you made a few comments about, you know, that's not how I was raised. Like you're raising your children in a very different, open-minded awareness communication, which so to me, parenting is evolving. And, and yes, I'm in Southern California. I'm in San Diego. I think there is like a, a very big, you know, supportive, parenting community here. I've, I've, I've always felt it that way. And, and, and I'm sorry, it's not the same where you are, but I, I do believe that hopefully that will, you know, expand to all sorts of different communities, because I think we're really seeing and feeling the need for community and support, especially for mothers, especially during the postpartum uh, period after giving birth and all that, that you know, we just don't have in this country. And it's, it's somewhat criminal to, you know, to, to, to expect uh, mothers to just deal with it. Yes, I totally agree. It is criminal. That is a, a very jarring word, but it's so true. These, these were never things discussed when I was pregnant. Like, hey, this is kind of what it's like, what happens to your body when you go, when you're postpartum, this, this could happen to you emotionally. And this, these are some warning signs. Nobody ever said anything. There was nothing. Right. So that's another area where it's like, it is criminal because you're, you might lose some of these women. You might, they might take their lives. Definitely. Definitely. And I know, you know, for me, um, like the postpartum health has been, uh, very important in my life. And, 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 you know, I have volunteered on warm lines and so forth. And I do feel today, so maybe it's also what I'm focusing on. <laughs> so, you know, I'm seeing more of it. I'm seeing more awareness. I'm seeing more people talk about it. Um, you know, even famous people who, who are expressing that, you know, they had a hard time and, and so forth. So that there is a little bit more openness about it, because I think we've been shamed for so long to, you know, go through these phases that are perfectly normal, natural, and every human being goes through them. So why shame us? But absolutely. 
Yeah. That's that's a conversation for another time. But yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, well, this has been uh, wonderful, Jeannie. And I, I do want to kind of circle back to you and, and your mothering. And so you said your eldest was 12. Um, if you were to go back 13 years ago when you were expecting her, what wise words would you tell yourself knowing all that you know today? That what she needs is to be loved and that I may not believe that I am maternal, but if I respond to my intuition when she needs me, that's going to be build the framework of our relationship. Beautiful. So it's, it's following the intuition and, and responding. Beautiful. Any, any parting words that you would like to leave our listeners with today? I guess I would just say that no matter where you are in your motherhood experience, it's really important that you remember that your life is comprised of who you are apart from being a mom. And that when you nurture the other creative forces in your life, it will actually breathe new life into the way that you parent your children, into the way that you love your your partner into the way that you um, are able to use your gifts in this world. So motherhood is like one part of your identity, but it's not the totality of who you are. Beautiful. Thank you for that. Very, very important. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for your time and just sharing your journey with us. It's been beautiful uh, getting to know you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Art of Parenting podcast. And if you did, please share it with your loved ones and make sure to leave a review so it can get heard by many more. And remember, if you've got a question, let me know. I'm here for you. Till next time.